It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello again. Welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I hope you're well on where I am, a cold and frosty morning, but I'm sure it still is afternoon or evening wherever you are, pretty chilly. I'm Hugh Wizencroft. lots for us to discuss today. Uh, we'll talk about Spurs and Everton. They turned up the heat a little bit, didn't they, in the FA Cup at Goodison Park? But is the tournament a little bit hit and miss this season? Mostly miss for Donny van der Beek at Manchester United. We'll ask why. Elsewhere, referee Mike Dean and his family are on the receiving end of death threats. Is referee scrutiny too intense? We'll also look at the Premier League castaways. Is the relegation battle already done and dusted? Also, we'll talk super subs. Stay tuned for that. But to help me through it all, uh, Tom Clark, Jonathan Northcroft and Gregor Robertson. Morning, guys. How are you doing? Very well, Hugh. Very well, Hugh. How are you? Thanks. Um, Listen, I'm all full house. Full house of enthusiasm, Hugh. Exactly, exactly. The the smile across my face now, you three have just, you know, you've come into the room so excited. That's what it's all about. Um, But last night, to be perfectly honest, it was a little bit different in terms of my my bounciness because I was accused of football fatigue watching Everton 5, Spurs 4 after extra time in the FA Cup because I felt as 5-4s go... It was a bit meh. And I know some people thought it was absolutely incredible, but I was just a bit... There was a take-it-or-leave-it moment at 4-4 after 90 minutes. I was like, do do I need to see another 30 minutes of this? And it felt a bit like, you know, the story of the FA Cup so far as a whole. Either brilliant to some, drab to others. You know, not much in between, frankly. Tom Clark, did, did you get where I'm coming from on that? There's just no pleasing you, Hugh Wasn't There really isn't, honestly. You're against anti-football, and now you can't even <laughs> find the joy in a 5-4 cup game. Well, come on, man. What more do you want? Jose Mourinho is giving, you, he's giving you everything. He's giving you all the options. He must be listening to the pod. He's thought, Hugh doesn't like my backs to the wall, anti-football. He's slagging me off all the time. Right, I'm going to show him. I'm going to open the floodgates, play some expansive football, give him some entertainment. That's what he wants. And you're still not happy, honestly. What, do you, what, what, what more do you want? This 5-4 fell on the side of error strewn. Lots of the goals came from giving the ball away cheaply, errors, you know, half hit, misclearances or whatever you want to call them. It was just like, and the goalkeeping on top of it all. And I was just sitting there like, there are 5-4s that are high quality. And you're like, wow, they're, you know, they're going to score amazing goals. There's move, there's skills, there's that sort of level of drama. And then there's... There's this where you're waiting on the next mistake, and it was it was a little bit like that for me. So that that's the only reason why. 
Um, but there is a wider context to, to the point that I make anyway. I look through the results in the FA Cup um, so far. Nothing really stood out to me, to be perfectly frank. Yeah, there were a couple of cup shocks, but in terms of that drama, that, that entertainment, that end-to-end football... It you know maybe the Man United Liverpool game that finished three two you know a big rivalry, but Johnny so far you know has has the FA Cup really got going? No, it hasn't. It hasn't at all. I mean, last night I think and and, and the night before fatigue was such an issue. Um, I think we're seeing it in the Premier League games as well. To be honest, I'm seeing a lot of variable Premier League matches. It's just that the Premier League's got the ongoing narrative to it that we you know we follow throughout a season we commit to so you can accept bad games um the cup kind of has to grab you by the throat and throw you or 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 there's no point to it that's you know that's what the cup football's supposed to be about and we're just seeing uh, i mean and, and, until the 5-4 um i mean there was just there was nothing in terms of entertainment the only team that don't look tired of manchester city they were brilliant against swansea i watched that um everyone else looked shattered i tried to watch leicester v brighton that was utterly dreadful. That made Manchester United West Ham look an incredible f- festival of football. It's just tiredness, and it, it doesn't help having these games in midweek. Um, this is always going to be the problem round, where this is the round that's shoehorned into the schedule. I think we we'll go back to Saturday matches for the quarterfinals. Um, but I, I think I wrote about this after. I went to Chorley Derby, and for me, that was a, an absolute nadir of the FA Cup in the sense that you were supposed on paper what you were watching was a plucky non-league club beating a championship team in reality it was an empty stadium a bunch of kids sent up the road just to fulfill the fixture you know a bunch of experienced guys sort of bullying them um radio commentators shouting about how this was the greatest shock in the world and not you know us all knowing in our hearts that we were just watching a fake, basically, from the press box. And it, and the thing that really struck me about that was the, that's what the FA, the FA Cup is supposed to be about more than anything else, communities and fans and, and the dream and so on. And there's just no dreaming when, when, when fans aren't there. And when, I mean, it, it just fit. My, my wife last night just said, why is the FA Cup even being played this year? You know, why, which is a perfectly decent question. And the answer is, it's just, it's just, for, it's money, isn't it? I mean, that's why every, all football's being played, of course, but with with the cup competitions, it's more naked than ever. They're just playing these competitions because the FA need to get paid, the EFL need to get paid, and we could probably do without them this year. I agree with that, but I'd quickly say the third round was decent. I mean, and that, you know, Marine story, Chorley, I was at Crawley against Leeds, and there's no two ways about it. Even though the fans weren't there, that was like. A moment that these players will live, you know, will be one of the biggest moments in their careers. A lot of them, I think. Uh, Cheltenham against Manchester City, uh, you know, they took them to the That's last good. 10, 15 minutes. So I think the third round actually kind of rose above that, that the kind of humdrum that it has been this season because it does feel like, as Johnny says, it's another competition that has to be ticked off. And we're squeezing these fixtures in. And, you know, that's already the case, that kind of sentiment a little bit for some of the bigger clubs, but this season even more so. So, you know, third round aside, I think, you know, this this week, this midweek, which is in itself is strange, um, you're right, you look around at the games and, and there was not much uh, action to be kind of getting wild about. The Leicester game was bizarre. I think there was a shot on target by their team in the first half. 
That's that's nonsense. <laughs> um, and and I kind of agree with you, Hugh. That although you know, I still found it very entertaining the Everton uh, Spurs game. It was weird. You know, you, you're used to seeing the odd mistake from Premier League elite footballers, but not to this to this extent. Uh, it was kind of calamitous at times. So yeah, it's in a weird. It's, it's definitely been a strange year for the FA Cup, and I think this midweek kind of encapsulated that. I think this this period in the FA Cup. It's obviously more pertinent this season because of the no fans and the cramming the games in. But I feel like we have this debate around the FA Cup at this stage every year. You kind of have the FA Cup third round and you pray for some excitement and some shocks and some big ties. And then you have the next couple of rounds where you're like, everyone's like, this is rubbish, this is boring. But I guarantee when you, and you look at the teams that are left in the draw, this competition will be, suddenly become meaningful again for these teams. You've either got Manchester City going for a domestic treble, double, another cup. Teams like Chelsea and Manchester United, who this could be a trophy for them this season. You've then got, you know, Sheffield United have talked about the FA Cup being, you know, a bit of a ray of light in a fairly depressing season. The same will probably apply for Wolves or Southampton, whoever goes through in that game. So you you have this period where we're all going, oh, the quality's not very good. And yes, everyone's tired. And yes, it feels like we've got to drag ourselves through. But I, I don't know. I have hope for the next for the next coming rounds because I, I think it'll start to matter to to all these teams because for for various reasons it gives them something really to fight for for this season. I'd also say that one of the best games, the most exciting looking games for me is is tonight before we were, you know uh, Barnsley Chelsea because Barnsley are one of the most interesting teams in the in the championship for me. Kind of many leads in the way they play, and, you know smaller resources. Um, and they're about history. Good piece in the Times today by Tom Roddy, and they've they beat Chelsea not so long ago in the cup. Um, and they're you know they've got a good record in the FA Cup, so that's one game that could spark a little bit of uh, unpredictability in this this uh, strange midweek round of fixtures. Midweek as well. It's it's strange, isn't it? It's got that feeling of like the the Europa League first knockout stage, and <laughs> that in, in in that big clubs have basically said, you know, for these next couple of rounds, we'll put some fringe players in. If we make it to the quarters and semis, you know, the, the big team, the first name players will come back in and we'll try and win it. And maybe that's why you're right. There's a bit of a lull after the third round. And especially as non-league teams go and lower league teams go as well, which which maybe sort of changes the dynamic of a lot of games. You know, you get these clubs throwing the kitchen sink at a Premier League side and maybe we feel a bit of drama off the back of that. But Johnny, you, you did raise a good point about the fans making a big difference as well. Gregor, do you, do you think this is the ultimate we need fans back competition? Yeah, I mean it's it's funny in this um you know, around the around the third round too, I the column I wrote, the journeyman, it's kind of a lot a lot of that is about finding seeking out these clubs anyway. You go to the to the small club and you look for the colour story and you know, you see how much it means to everyone. I do that kind of most weeks. Um and the FA, but the FA Cup is the ultimate example of that. And there's just, you know, you, even if you go to Marina, as Johnny says, you go to Chorley or whatever, there is none of that surrounding atmosphere. I think I remember Johnny's piece was really good. He's talking about walking to the game, and you know, normally that's when all the sights and smells, and everything comes alive. And there was just nothing there except a kind of TV van. Um, so yeah, there is nothing that drums home. I don't think. Um, the kind of sadness of of the absence of fans than than the FA Cup win when the 
kind of David meets Goliath kind of games and, and how much that usually means for these clubs. There was, after the game at Goodison Park, um, something to reflect on in terms of the result. As I say, it was Everton 5 at Spurs 4. Whether you called it entertaining or not is up to you. But Jose Mourinho, for those that thought it was really entertaining, had a few choice words. It's a bit of an ongoing saga over the way Tottenham play. He said, attacking football with defensive mistakes doesn't pin matches. I think that's a message to fans and critics as to why Spurs don't play more attacking football. Is he ever going to get over this, Johnny? <laughs> um, it, it, was, it was like, you know, some, sometimes managers put a player into a game that they, they don't like the player and they put him into the game to show how bad the player is so they can then say to the fans, right, we're not going to pick him again. Um, and it was almost like Jose Mourinho played that way in a game that didn't really matter to him just so he can then say for the rest of the season, like, that's why we go 1-0 up and then cling on and, and, and try and close out the game. Um, and he's no, he won't ever go. And he came up with some odd analogy at the end about the cat and the mouse, and how I think the cat was was the great um, attacking football that that they played, and the mouse was Spurs defending. And I, 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 I didn't quite, I didn't quite get it. But I think what he was, I think what he was trying to say was that the defending needs to be the cat, i.e., the defending needs to be, um, you know, the big fierce. Uh, dominant part of Spurs game and you know the, the going up field can be the mouse I don't know maybe maybe I got confused he the problem for Jose <laughs> the problem for Jose is that um, if his defensive style quote unquote was working if going 1-0 up and hanging on was working then it would be a lot more convincing listening to him but it's not he's going 1-0 up against Crystal Palace and conceding in the 83rd minute from a set piece. You know, it's happening all, it's happening all the time. And it, when he talks about it, it does sound a bit like a guy that just doesn't quite get it anymore, that attacking football is the dominant sort of trope in football at the moment. And, and it seems like to succeed, you have to be good at that part of the game. And then you fit the defending around that. So, you know, Pep Guardiola's style of defending or Jurgen Klopp's style of defending is actually the other side of the... The, the coin from their attacking, i.e., you know, pressing or, or, or positional play. And it just sounds like, Jose just sounds like he thinks it's an either or. And I think football, it's not an either or anymore, attacking and defending. Um, that's what it sounds like to me. The way that Spurs played had really very little bearing on the goals they conceded. The goalkeeper who, who couldn't stop, like, his hands like wet lettuce. And Hoiberg. He's, he's t- a shocking t- touch that led to Richarlison's goal, which was, again, Lurie should have stopped. Um, a penalty, which was which was unfortunate, clearly. Um, but, mo- you know, most of the goals there were there were Spurs on making, really. So, you know, I don't think you can you can really draw a comparison with the two, although Mourinho was keen to afterwards. I don't think you can say that because Spurs were playing a little bit more on the front foot and attacking... Uh, that's why they conceded five goals. They conceded five goals because they made horrendous errors. I don't want to focus too much on Jose, except to say he's always got an excuse at the moment, which never bodes well for me. You know, if he can never hold his hands up and just say, we didn't play that great or we made loads of mistakes, it's all our fault and we'll work on it. You know, anything that's remotely sensible after a game would be great, Jose. So a little, little message from me. Um, I didn't tee this up, but I think I should mention it because lots of Everton fans online I saw mentioning the performance of Tom Davies in midfield for them. And 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 maybe just 
the idea that he's finally finding a position. He's not a player that I've necessarily been enamoured with. And in fact, yesterday I thought there were a couple of major moments that he, he lacked in. But I, I wonder whether you think his game's coming along, Tom Clark. Well, Paul Joyce wrote an excellent piece um, in The Times only this week about how Davis is finding a role on Duran Ancelotti. Um, and as well as proving me wrong with my prediction at the start of the season, Carlo is also as well as getting the best out of his best players, the Calvert-Lewins and the Richarlisons, he seems to be bringing more out of the squad players as well. Alex Awobi has had a little spurt of um, good form and Tom Davis is now finding a role, whether he will keep that role when people like Alan come back into midfield or not. But to, to, to compete at the top of the league, you need a squad full of players like Tom Davis, who is maybe never going to be a nine out of 10 player but he needs to work out how, what he can offer to the team. And if it is that kind of snapping midfield role, then then that can be a brilliant thing. I thought he was excellent in a very unassuming way against Manchester United in that draw. He was clearly given the role of running around the pitch and kicking Bruno Fernandes, which is a very old school role, but he did it very well. Bruno Fernandes was livid by about 70 minutes at being kicked the whole time. But, you know, and he's very he's still very young. You know, we've talked before on recent podcasts about young players he burst onto the scene I think he scored that goal in that Everton win against Manchester City when everyone was like oh my god Pep Guardiola can't do it I think they won 4-1 he scored a great goal running through but again he's you know one of those midfielders what is he what you know is he attacking midfielder is he defensive and I think now we're starting to see thanks to Ancelotti that he's given him some purpose um, kept hold of him in the summer Paul Joyce made, the, made that point that a lot of clubs were interested in taking him both permanently and on loan and Ancelotti said, no, stay. And it's just, it's, it's great management from Ancelotti to get, to get more out of these players and to give them a purpose um, and to give them a clear role. Um, you know, and he's, he's got a lot more to offer as well. He's only 22. I was going to say, I mean, I mean Davis is someone I've, 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 I've probably criticised as much as anyone and, and, and uh, you know, I've heard, used to hear things about him not being sort of too serious as a footballer or, you know, he, he, he just was a bit of a joker in training. And I think that's gone. I think Ancelotti's um, got him now on, on a path where he, he can become a serious footballer. But I just wanted to mention Decore because how good is that guy? I mean, you know, Davis or Allen or whatever, it seems to always be the other players that get the, get the attention. And I don't see Decore have a bad game. I barely see him have a bad touch. He can do everything as a midfielder. I really think he's one of the best sort of unsung players in the in, in the Premier League. And again, last night and in, and against United at Old Trafford, I mean the guy is just fantastic. So I think that's helping Davis as well. I think he, I think we're actually seeing that Decore was carrying that midfield as much as Allen was, and and I think that's helping Davis slot in there. He was another one of those players, Decore. You're watching the match last night. You see Richarlison, ex Watford. You see Decore. Uh, you see Craig Dawson, ex-Watford, you know, <laughs> playing uh, for West Ham on Tuesday night as well and the great things he's done to help their defence this season. And you wonder why we 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 sort of criticise teams at the bottom so much in their players because clearly, clearly the quality is there at all Premier League sides. And I guess that's why many call it the best league in the world. We're going to talk relegation a little bit later on, but I did want to reflect on another FA Cup game. This one didn't really set the pulses racing in the same way, I've got to say, as the match at Goodison Park. And it did take an extra time winner, though, from Scott. McTominay 
um, as Manchester United came past West Ham at Old Trafford on Tuesday night. But the, the major story for many concerned another of their midfielders, Donny van de Beek. The Dutchman hasn't started a Premier League game since December the 5th. He, he did start this game. He lasted 73 minutes, but again, he looked totally lost. And in fact, the last time he started a Premier League game was against West Ham on December the 5th. He was hooked at half time of that game. So it's clearly not a team he enjoys playing against, but I think there's a bigger story to it as well. Jonathan, you, you've written about Donny van der Beek in the past. What, what do you think the issue is for him at Manchester United? Look, I, th- I, think, there's a, I think there's a few issues. And, and obviously the, 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 the biggest issue is Bruno Fernandes and how good he is. And not, a couple, there's a couple of things off the back of that. Donny van der Beek is clearly not Bruno Fernandes as a footballer. But he's a different style of player. And I think one of his issues is that he's playing or his role is as the Bruno Fernandes understudy. But the team, has, Bruno has, has kind of molded that team now uh, around the way he plays. So just what, you know, one, one sort of technical thing I see a lot is Bruno's got a great facility to, to, to get up to the box and then suddenly drop off, very quickly drop off into a pocket and the team know that and look for him. Van der Beek goes to the edge of the box and then his instinct is to try and get in for, you know, almost like a second striker. Completely different way of playing. And you see, you'll see him a lot in a game making a run in the box and pointing where he wants the ball and just getting completely ignored. I think they mentioned it in commentary. And I don't necessarily see that as his fault. I just think that it's a guy who's, who's, who's being expected to take someone else's role, but he actually plays in a different way. I think he's, he's clearly as the season goes on losing confidence you can see that he's 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 going into his shell and and i think the worrying aspect of his last couple of performances is probably he was there's a fatalism about it he 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 wasn't imposing himself on the action and you know when he came off just you could see a player that almost expected the inevitable number to 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 go up um, I think it's interesting to see which way this goes because I think the bigger picture is, you know, he was he was courted and signed last year when Bruno was still settling in. Um, Solskjaer played a big part in the in, in in the signing, and I wrote about this that that you know Van der Beek had Real Madrid as an option, he had Bayern Munich interested. There were there were plenty of clubs who, on the back of his performances in the Champions League for Ajax in particular, were, were, were really interested. And it was Solskjaer's pitch to him that, 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 that was the most appealing and their sort of connection that they had. Don't forget that Edwin van der Sar is a big figure in this as well. Ajax CEO. Such a bit, he's, Edwin is still a very much a Manchester United person and kind of would have helped in this, this transfer. So Van der Beek went to United thinking he was going to play for a manager and at a club that was going to be perf- the perfect stage for him. And it, it may have been, but what's changed is, is Bruno's just become more and more dominant and Paul Pogba, of course, has stayed. And I think, although at the moment there's an acceptance from Van der Beek's part that, that this is going to be a transitional season and from Solskjaer and United's part that, that this is a transitional season... There's always a point where the, 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 the clock starts ticking for a player. And I don't think it'll be this season, but I think, I think next season if, if it will be um, where, it has to, where it has to produce, where it has to come out in the wash. The one thing we're not going to see from Van der Beek, he's not going to be one of those Dutch players that 
complains that goes back to international duty and there's a huge story about how unhappy he is. He's not that type of character, which probably helps the situation. I just feel sorry for him. I, th- I see a talented player who's not, who's, who's not, for a couple of reasons, showing himself at the moment. And it seems to be getting worse for him and not better. I can see a human situation in there. And I, I, I feel sorry for him. I think there's, there's a definitely a player in there, whether it's going to be a Manchester United player or not in the current system I don't know Tom what do you think does he does he does he fit their system really van der Beek as a player do you think it's coaching as well maybe he needs to be forced to change the, his style of play I really hope I'm wrong but when he joined Manchester United I said that Donny van der Beek was the worst fit for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Manchester United and I said that having watched a lot of Ajax when they were in the Champions League because when you think back to that Ajax team They were a team that burst onto the scene as a team. They didn't necessarily have the star guy. There was no like, oh my God, have you seen that guy for Ajax? It was, have you seen Ajax as a team? And then people started to notice Matthias De Ligt, Frankie de Jong, Hakim Ziyech. And still no one was mentioning Donny van der Beek. And so at the the time, my editor said, you know, do do some research, watch a lot of the Ajax games. And I went back and watched them. And I came away thinking, this guy, this guy is the real deal. This guy is what it all goes through. You know, he was excellent in a team that, you know, they nearly reached the Champions League final. And yet, you know, people still weren't talking about Donny van der Beek as one of the stars of the Ajax team. And yet, you know, I was watching it and he was so crucial to how that team worked. As Johnny said, he would play off Dusan Tadic as the lead striker, go in, break into the box and score goals. He would also harry and press opposition defences. But it was all part of this brilliant organism that, you know, was the Ajax team. And Manchester United are so not like that. That, This isn't a criticism of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for all I've slagged him off this season. They are not like that. As Johnny said, you know, he's got them built on, you know, hard work, Manchester United ethics and Bruno Fernandes. They are not, it's it's more than he, but Donny van der Beek is not Bruno Fernandes. Even if you took him out, you'd then have to put him in and then you'd have to build a team in which he was a vital cog. There's two stages to this, which is why it's so difficult. And that's why I have my doubts about even if you give him a season to find him a role in that midfield, it still won't work because he'll still be making those little runs and looking at Rashford and Martial and going, lads, anyone going to give me the ball? No. Damn, I miss Frankie de Jong. Bloody hell. You know, it, it, it just doesn't work to me. Having watched him so much when in that season and seeing how well he benefited off the little movements of other teammates add into the Bruno Fernandes factor add into the fact that pressure of being a Manchester United player and every time you get 70 minutes in a game against West Ham and everyone's going why isn't he taking a touch out of his feet and banging it in the top corner and that's how you're judged he, I, I like Johnny I feel so sorry for him and it makes me sad because he was such a brilliant and joyful player to watch in that Ajax team. He did so much brilliant, brilliant work that made that team click that I just, I've, I have real fear that he won't ever get the chance to do that at Manchester United. I tend to agree with you. I sent a message to a mate straight away. I said, he's going to be on loan next season, minimum, if not at another club, because it, it just doesn't fit. But also he's almost, he's too good of a player for you to sit back and just say, yeah, let's, you know, we'll put him on the bench for another season and he'll play a little bit part role. 
you know, I, I, I just don't see it. There'll be interest. There'll be money available. If it's not working, I, I suspect Manchester United will probably take it in the current current climate. The only hope for him, and I would say this, uh, Martin Hardy did a piece speaking to people in Holland about him when he joined Manchester United. Spoke to former coaches, journalists over there who'd followed his career in the same way that Frankie de Jong had come through the system and gone on to Barcelona. And, and they said that Van der Beek also has the, the ability and did when he was younger, played a deeper role. And that's, that's what I mean. He, he is one of these people that he's a, he's a cog in a machine. He's not a Bruno Fernandes. And so his only chance, perhaps, is that if Solskjaer's big plan is to mould him into a, you know, a number six, a deeper lying player to play behind Fernandes, which takes a lot of time. And it is also why you won't see him in these little fleeting moments during the season in big games. He'll lob him in further up the pitch and say, go on, you know, do what you can. So th- that's maybe his only hope is to, through this season in training, try and work with Fernandes and learn to play with him. Because that's when you'll see Donny van der Beek as the player he can be if he learns to play with Bruno Fernandes in a different role, not trying to be Bruno Fernandes Mark II. The thing that leapt out to me there when you said, you know, God, I miss, I miss uh, De Jong. It's like, wh- where would De Jong fit into this Manchester United team? So it, w- Manchester United have two midfielders, holding midfielders, it's, it, it's you know it's reductive to call them destroyers, but they're, that is their primary f- objective. They've got to they defend the back on front of the back four, and you know McTominay's grown in stature. I think he's becoming a really good player for Manchester United, and he can he can play football, he can spread the ball well, but he's not creative. He's not a creative footballer. Uh, so the idea of of having a creative footballer as one of those two midfielders for Manchester United would be a big kind of change in intact for Solskjaer I think so you're, you're right but they're probably you know even if they went out and signed a new player to, to play in midfield he wouldn't be of that ilk and so that's his problem I think that's where it comes into not just the it's the midfield dynamic essentially you can even hone in on that and uh, well what you're saying is true but Fernandez is such a kind of you know a, a, an individual a moment of brilliance kind of guy um Whereas, as you say, Van der Beek is kind of part of a, a collective and that's it's hard to see where he where he fits in in, in Manchester United's midfield, basically. If only there was a high-profile example of a, a, a talented player in the attacking third of the pitch <laughs> trying to be moulded into a, into a deeper central midfielder that hasn't really worked out for Manchester United. We could use that. As, as a case in point, <laughs> carry our argument through. But we'll just we'll, we'll have to yeah, we'll have to wonder from here on out. Um, listen, if you're enjoying listening to the podcast, much more still to come. By the way, then please do give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or wh- wherever you get your podcast from. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next episode. And for more of our award winning journalism, of course, get yourself a digital subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times. You can get it on all of your devices. Sign up today you'll get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Next up on the game, it's a little bit more serious because lots has been said over abuse in football of late. And it's very unfortunate that it's reared its ugly head once again. A referee, Lee Mason, won't be refereeing or VAR in the next round of Premier League matches after recent high-profile errors. And Mike Dean has notified police after receiving death threats and abusive messages at him and his family. He won't be officiating a game this weekend after his request to be stood down was granted. My question really on this is, I think there's a responsibility for all of us, um, our football fans, the football media, managers, players, all of us really, who watch and analyse the game, too quick and maybe too strong on our criticism of referees. Has that scrutiny, Tom, become too much? I don't know whether it's become too much, but it's part of the changing landscape of how we view and consume and interact with football. You know, before the days of the just constant, never-ending news cycles and things, you'd go to a football game and you'd scream at the referee for 90 minutes and then and then you'd leave and you'd go home and not think about it. You know, my dad is one of the most mild-mannered, polite men you could ever you could ever meet, but I've seen him at football stand up as if he wants to fight someone. I mean, it's hilarious a lot of the time. But, um, you know, and he, w- he wouldn't recognise that if I said that to him. But that's that's how we used to consume football, isn't it? You know, you'd go and you'd scream and you'd say, referee, you're absolutely useless. But because of the constant ability to engage with football, because of social media, because of it, it that makes it more 24-hour, that tribalism, and people feed on it for longer. And I think that comes across in our criticism, both of players, of referees, of clubs. It, it feeds into that. And so... I mean, it's. I don't know whether it's changed or got worse. I just think the ability for fans, for that tribalism and for that anger to spill over into a wider context than the confines of a stadium is just far easier now, especially as no one's going to stadiums, of course. So I, I, I don't think it's got worse. I don't think having you know gone to football in stadiums a lot in my lifetime as a fan, I don't think it's got worse. I just think the ability for people to be targeted, unfortunately, is just far easier. <laughs> I was laughing at um, Tom talking about his dad there, and my dad's exactly the same, mild-mannered guy. Um, the only time um, I really saw him angry when I was a kid was when we went to the football at, at Pataudry. But my dad's he was an English teacher, and I remember a game where we had a, a typical old firm-centred biased Glaswegian referee or whatever was given the opposition all the decisions and all the other dads in the stand were were sort of giving him the F word and, and, and whatever my dad stood up and there was a kind of moment of silence 
And he filled that silence by shouting, referee, you're a posturing twit. And the whole stand <laughs> just creased up with laughter. And it was, it was the most embarrassing moment of my entire childhood. Because course, my dad sat down and go, well, well, that told him. Um, with me and my brother trying to distance ourselves. But, I mean, even he got, he even, even he got riled up by refs. Tom's right. I mean, it's always been there. The, the, I guess the, 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 one of the problems with social media as a platform is everyone's fighting for attention. So I think it pushes people to the extreme. You know, a, a lot of, let's say, the racial abuse is coming from kids, 15, 16-year-old kids. And these are, these are kids trying to show off, being as nasty as they can be, um, vocalizing horrendous stuff to try and, uh, you know, to, just, to, just to try and shock. And, and it gives a very real platform to it. And we know, that, we know that the social media companies aren't doing enough. I don't think it'll be sorted until there's a, there's a real identity attached to each account. It's not just, you know, you set up an email account, you get, you get a, 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 a Twitter account or an Insta account. I think it has to be that it, it's, you know, it's using individuals traceable back to you. Anything that comes off your account, you take legal responsibility for. Until that moment, people will continue to use it and say whatever they want to. And, you know, issue, I mean, Mike Dean's a 52-year-old bloke. You know, he, he, he's, he's doing his best. He's knackered and he's, being, he's getting death threats. You know, Lee Mason's, and, and you know, I, I, was, I was ridiculing him last week, so I'm a hypocrite. But, you know, he's, he's now being ridiculed by everybody and social media amplifies it all. And uh, yeah, it, 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 that's what has to change. We could do, we can do, a, I'm just gonna say we can, you know, obviously we're trying to contextualize all this, but it's, yeah, somebody's getting a death threat because of, because of the way the referee in the pitch is, it, it's, it's insane, you know? And it's true. I mean, all of that, we, just, we had this discussion last, uh, on Monday about, about social media and, and, it's almost like the, the the real thing that's changed is the means of delivery. It's and it's much more it's much easier and it's much more direct and it's much more cutting. Um and it's also much more it can be scarier too. So, you know, no matter who's sending it, that's that's a scary thing to receive. Um so there's that whole side of it. And then there's the whole kind of maelstrom that we've discussed so much about the the kind of crisis of the laws of the game and tangled up with VAR and the referees being the guys kind of in the middle of all this and not really a kind of, they're either having to admit their own mistakes or they're probably scared that something's being poured over and if they don't give a decision, then, you know, they'll be hung out to dry when actually more often than not, they're given a decision and that's meaning they're hung out to, hung out to dry. So it's a kind of, it's a bit of a maelstrom of all these things and who would want to be a referee right now? That's all I would say. Really. I think we're kind of probably traveling down a road where we could be in, in trouble trying to find new referees because <laughs> why would you want to be a referee right now? No, it's, it's, it's a very valid point. I think it's a sort of thing that's said at Sunday league, you know, someone says something a bit off key to a referee and you sort of get your teammates around saying, hold on a minute, you know, we wouldn't be able to play on a Sunday if it wasn't for these guys, but that, that doesn't seem to transcend up to professional football and, and fans opinion of referees at that level, you know, um, recently there was a game, I won't mention the broadcaster, but lots of fans of a particular club were saying we've just smashed another team 
and all the post-match conversation is about one poor VAR slash refereeing decision. Um, and I wonder whether Johnny micro-analysis of decisions or, or even inflating decisions to make them seem bigger than they actually are um, is making referees' jobs impossible and maybe leading towards um, the idea for fans at home that the referees are almost responsible. I think it is, and I know exactly the game you're talking about. I watched the analysis and 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 was in despair at it. And and I I, I think there's a I think that I think punditry has got to play a part. I think there's there's a failure of um, ability to deconstruct and analyse games from certain pundits or certain channels and, and not not others I'm not generalizing you know Monday Night Football or whatever just does an incredible job but sometimes when a, when pundits or, or the presenter don't know how to talk about the game properly the easiest thing to do is to fasten on to one decision easy controversy easy talking point easy um, way to then make comments that are going to reverberate on social media and get the get the show more um, attention and of course you're right Hugh that does then I think send the public away with the idea that this particular facet of the game is more important than it is and microanalysis is exactly right that, that that's it's this perfect storm Gregor mentioned it we're in a perfect storm now where it, 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 we've even got ex-referees now a standard part of the analysis team and this need for more content content than ever and this is providing content, and, and it's a vicious circle. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I think, I, I think there's, there's, I don't know, getting, getting a bit all kind of like, let's all love each other, like, you know. But we, we probably all need. We're <laughs> You're probably, rubbing I off, know, mate. Tom. Well, it's, I know, <laughs> Just get along, lads. Come on, let's be nice to each other. It's the Clark effect. It's the vibes. It's, but no, we, I think we all need to look at it. I think we all need to look at it. But I think, I think punditry definitely needs to be part of this and, 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 and look at things properly. And let's, let's talk about the games. I mean, referees, refereeing mistakes are mistakes. They will happen. Let's try and talk about the games a bit more. But it's, uh, it's, it is a crisis. It's not like under, that's not hyperbole. It's the laws aren't fit for purpose and it's, it's ruining the spectacle and they're not coming up with the right decisions. So I think they're perfectly valid to, to highlight those, those facts and to analyse them. I, you know, it doesn't matter what the game, what happened in the game. If there's something that's that that kind of calamitous happened in a game, then you've got to analyse it. And I know that's not helping this situation. And and as we're talking about the state, the cycle, and the kind of perfect storm. But I think it'd be ridiculous to ignore it as well. But shouldn't we talk about the laws? I mean, I know what you're saying, Gregor. But but why aren't they talking about the context then? The laws. You know, you've you made a great point. Laws aren't fit for purpose. But that's not the analysis you hear. The analysis boils down to individuals and it boils down to how on earth has Mike Dean made this decision. I don't know. I mean, there's been times where I've seen the, the, whoever the, the new celebrity ref is kind of coming on the screen saying, <laughs> this is the decision, this is why we've come to the decision, because of this law. And then it comes back to the studio and they'll say, well, clearly that's another, another example of the law being an ass, essentially. So I, I think, you know, I, yes, perhaps the analysis could be better, but I... I I have no problem with them analysing it because I think it's important. And I think without the analysis of it, we probably won't improve, you know, come to, there's not the pressure, although the pressure has been directed in the wrong direction at the moment on the referees themselves. We need pressure applied somewhere so that the laws change and they improve and the use of VAR changes has improved. 
because then ultimately the spectacle and the game improves. I was dismayed by one of the pundits coming off Sky after um, Thomas Suchek's red card. Uh, going onto their social media channels, both their Instagram and their Twitter, and putting hashtag B end about the referee. Um, you know, I, I, I literally could not believe it. I could not believe someone who is former England international, former Premier League player, would do something like that. You know, I, and I, a lot of ex players will say, I had a run in with this ref when I was a player. So for some reason, that means that, you know, their decision on that particular day in a game after you've retired is, is somehow linked. But Gregor, I wonder um, if you ever felt in all the years you played football genuinely in your heart of hearts that a referee was responsible for a result going one way or the other. I mean, you, you can be, be pretty angry on a pitch if you feel that a referee's decision has robbed you of a result or points. But one, one decision. Yeah. So I can understand if it's one decision, but I'm talking about the game. Say you've lost 3-1, referee makes an appalling decision, maybe didn't even have a great, great game. Do you leave that game and think, if this referee wasn't here today, we would have won 4-0? No, of course not, no. Exactly. So, I mean, so do, you, do you honestly, in your heart of hearts, ever think, aside from referees, and referees do occasionally make poor decisions, we've all watched football for a long time, but have you ever left a game and genuinely felt, if the, that guy wasn't the referee today the result would have been flipped on its head, basically. I don't know. I've seen some pretty bad performances. <laughs> I, don't, I know this is not helping the conversation and the, kind of, the line, of, line of argument I was trying to go down there. But I've seen some where, people, where referees almost lose control of, of discipline. And you know, this is particularly in the lower leagues. If you think that it's bad in the Premier League, then crikey, watch some lower league games. Tom will back me up here. But it's, it's the loss of control sometimes that you come off thinking this referee wasn't you know, they were, the players were, were kind of pulling the wool over his eyes sometimes or he wasn't given decisions or he was, it was just the pressure was too much for him. He wasn't, he wasn't good enough, basically. And that's, you know, that's a harsh thing to say. I know we're, when you say that about a Premier League referee now, it's kind of, it's deemed inappropriate. So I won't name anyone. But, so yes, the answer to that, to that is yes. I've come off the pitch and thought he wasn't in control. And actually, you know, it's hard to say yes, the, the result would have been flipped, but the game would have been different. The, the, the whole atmosphere of the game, the, the challenges that were going in, the, just the whole spectacle is, would have been different because the referee, the way the referee controls the game is vital. I think Gregor's use of the word control is really interesting in all of this because watching football lower down the leagues, and again, my dad is one for terrible for having a go at referees in a very biased way. And I, I've often found myself saying, well, a, referee, a good referee in the lower leagues and this applies higher up the pyramid as well is one that has control sets his stall out and you know if he books someone early at least he's consistent throughout the game and books people for those ta those tackles that's all you can ask for this is my style I am in control this is how I'm going to referee the game and if you think back to pre-technology that's a lot of how we used to judge referees if they had just a solid control on how they were officiating the game and sometimes that would manifest into the old adage of, oh, the referee, we barely spoke about the referee, so he had a great game. Or maybe we did in high-profile games. Pierre-Luigi Colina had a very firm hold on the game and you said you knew where you stood with him. So that's, that's good refereeing. Now, a referee doesn't have control. Not, he can never have control from the kickoff in a Premier League game. 
He can have control of a League, league One game and set his stall out and maybe you won't agree with him, but you can say, okay, at least he was consistent and he gave all those little niggly fouls which you'd like to see him let go, but fine. Premier League referees are never in control. They go out there and it's like they're puppets being you know, pulled all over the place. Go and look at the screen, like touch your ear, blah, blah, blah. Then they're never in control from the very start. So it's interesting to hear you know, an ex-pro say they've lost control. Premier League referees, good quality referees, you know, these guys that have been in the game a long time, are walking out onto the pitch and they don't have full control of the game from the start. So I, I have huge sympathy with them because I don't think you can even get into a conversation about the quality of refereeing, which we're not even doing really now. And you could, there are lots of fans probably listening going, yeah, but he's rubbish, but he's rubbish. Yeah, but he's given so many crap decisions lately. Because it's such a vicious circle of the quality coming up maybe isn't good enough. And there's so much intensity on in every decision. So you don't get a chance to make mistakes. So these guys still get keep getting used. The pressure comes on them. The technology's there. It's this horrible cycle that we're going round and round. But I just thought it was interesting to hear Gregor use the word control because I've, I feel like modern day referees don't have control from the kickoff. And that's not their fault. I think that's right, and I, I I look at VAR and I, I I was mistaken about VAR because I I my I thought that it was going to give referees more control and more credibility, and my tipping point was I met, do you remember the game where Andre Mariner sent off? I'm trying to get it this right way around. I think he sent off Kieran Gibbs when it was actually Oxlade Chamberlain that handled the ball yep. on the line. Yeah, that's right. Identity. I'm st- still angry it, about that because I had Kieran Gibbs in my fantasy <laughs> football team. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was it was ridiculous, and it just held Mariner up to absolute ridicule because he was a one person. Out of, billions were watching it on TV, and he was a one person in the whole world that that you know didn't know that there was a terrible mistake being made. And I thought you bring in technology, something like that can very easily someone in the earpiece just says to him, "No, you got the wrong player." mistake avoided and the referees and their authority is protected and it's completely right you know it's seeing something in action I didn't expect this but instead of buttressing authority and control it's taken away from it that would have been a rule change it would have solved that allowing someone to correct the referee it's not really requiring dramatic you know technology <laughs> just somebody being allowed to say to the ref sorry you've got the wrong guy there that's all that needed. So the laws just need to be, we need, we need more common sense in the laws, essentially. And I'm not someone, I'm not a lawmaker. I don't know how you're going to write them. I don't know how you're going to write the draft a handball law. Yeah. You know, there are some some difficult issues. And, and as we say, the scrutiny on some of these decisions now has just been ramped right up because of video technology. But really underpinning a lot of it is the laws. A couple of things to say before we move on from this conversation. Firstly, my partner works in social care, so I've got some advice for those of you out there who would pick up your phone or get on the laptop to send death threats and abuse. If you if you haven't heard of it, it's fantastic. It's something called a worry monster. So you can buy a, a little thing. It's got a zip over its belly. And every time you get a little bit annoyed, a little bit angry, want to send the referee a death threat, for example, what you do is you just tear off a small strip of paper and you write your angry words on it. And then you, you put it inside the belly of the worry monster and then the worry monster eats them. And then that they're all taken care of. So you don't have to send death threats or abuse to referees anymore. So there is an outlet out there. Look them up. Go on you know, Amazon or wherever you buy your worry monsters from. They're available from all good shops and stores, I'm, I'm sure. So there you go. There is an outlet for your anger aside from sending it directly to footballers or players or, or whatever it is. 
referees, managers, whoever. And you've hit the, the right demographic there. Absolutely. I, I think so. I think so, yeah. I Absolutely. So, yeah. <laughs> um, just to say on it before we move on, this week the Premier League and football clubs made a lot of commitments towards racial equality and ending sort of discrimination in the workplace, etc., etc. And I just wondered on this point whether it was time that broadcasters, newspapers... Um, the clubs themselves, you know, made a, a joint commitment to sort of row back on their regular criticisms of VAR and referees so that it maybe changes the landscape a little bit because it does seem like this is another key area that there needs to be work done in. What do you think about that, Johnny? Yeah, um, that would be lovely. The, the, the problem is it, that, that a lot of that you can't dig out Liam Mason then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but look, I, I, I think I think a lot of managers or clubs or whatever set off for nice intentions. Then they get beaten in a game. Then they need a scapegoat, and then Lee Mason's there. You know, it's it's that that's the problem. I think it's entirely right. We need to change the conversation. Um, but in defeat, in that moment of defeat, when you need someone to blame, um, it's too often going to be the referee. All right. Thank you for, for joining in on that discussion. Anyway, some good points made, but I don't I don't want anyone out there to think that any of that discussion was aimed at sort of, um, you know, giving some sort of understanding as to why you would abuse referees. It is totally unacceptable and, and should not be happening anywhere in the game. Let's move on, though, next. Um, Back to the league, uh, in particular the Premier League, but to the, the bottom three clubs in the Premier League, to be specific, because... It is looking bleak if you're a fan of Fulham, West Brom or Sheffield United. Or maybe Sheffield United, you still hold out a little bit of hope. But we're going to talk about the relegation battle or, let's be frank, non-relegation battle this season. Because it looks like, for those three clubs, the writing is already on the wall after 22 or so games. There's an eight-point gap between Burnley and the bottom three, essentially. Fulham on 15 points, West Brom on 12 Sheffield United on 11. I'm just waiting for Sheffield United to overtake West Brom, by the way, so that we can call the, the worst Premier League season ever transmits from one club to the next. But um, I, I don't see any way, Gregor, do you, that they these three teams get out of this? I was thinking about this this morning, and I think, I think that they will all pick up points, and I think particularly Sheffield United are going are gonna to go on a bit of a run, I'm hope, hopefully. <laughs> your, faith, hope so. your faith in Sheffield United coming back is stronger than my faith in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer eventually being sacked at some point soon. In fairness, in fairness, I think it was still quite strong when they were on like four points. So <laughs> um, I'm clinging oh, to no, it. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you credit. You, back, you backed them yeah. a long time ago. Fair play. Uh, you know, sticking the, to your guns. We talked about the FA Cup there and it has actually galvanised their season a little bit. At least they've found a way to, to ground, out, ground out a few wins and I think that transmitted to a bit of confidence in, in the Premier League. So that's helped them and I, I expect them to I expect them to run it closer, but my problem my problem is you look at the teams above them, and I can't see it's hard to pick one out that's that's going to be bad enough to to drop into the bottom three essentially. I'm I'm kind of a little bit worried about Wolves. Like I, I don't they've got enough points, but they've really have been an awful awful run of form, and I think they're going to I think they, we could see them drop a bit further. But they've they've collected they've collected enough points already, really. So. And I just can't. I think Burnley are going to be good enough. I think Newcastle are going to be good enough. Although just you know, only just. And the same is true of Brighton. And above them, there's no chance really. So it's 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 a peculiar one this season because you'd say that Fulham have been a team as well who have been really 
you know, in all their games, a lot of their games, and and run a lot. You know, should have probably collected more points. The ones I've lost have been close, um, and they're playing good football. They're quite. They're a team you enjoy to watch, actually. But it's just who who they've got. Who they're going to catch? It's the same for any of them. So it needs to be a it needs going to have to be a remarkable run of form for the, for any of them to to gain enough points to to jump out of the bottom three. I think, as I say, I think Sheffield United and Fulham will will run it closer than than it is just now. I think they'll narrow that gap. I, I don't know whether they're going to going to be able to jump out. 14 games without a win in all competitions for Fulham. It's one win in 14 for West Brom. Six wins in nine for Sheffield United in all competitions. It doesn't really seem like relegation form and they're the team at the bottom of the table. So I can understand your, your hope, but it maybe seems a stretch too far at the moment. 12 points from safety. I mean... It's going to have to be a hell of a run from here on out for Chris Wilder's side. But I think we all have that faith after what they provided uh, last season in the Premier League. I wanted to talk a little bit, though, about his counterpart at West Brom, Sam Allardyce. 28 goals conceded in his first 10 games in charge. That is the joint worst record in the Premier League uh, for a manager taking charge of a club. He was meant to be the saviour. He was meant to have this impact. Big Sam, you know... The, the, the person that comes in and rescues teams. Tommy hasn't got close to it. He hasn't, no. I mean, I've mentioned before, I've got a friend, a good friend of mine who's a West Brom fanatic and it's got to the point where I actually feel bad bringing it up as a topic of conversation. You know, with your mates, you want to chat about the football, he might message me and say, well, Lincoln are doing well. And I, I actually got to the point where I now feel bad about bringing it up. The last time that I did, he said he'd kind of given up. He'd forgotten about the season. He's got a young kid, so, you know, focus on being a dad, forget about the football for, for a year. Um, so it, it is extraordinary, the lack. They, I mean, they've almost gone backwards, haven't they? they? They look like they're going backwards and there's no sense that they've gone two steps backwards to make some big giant leap forwards either. I don't get the impression that they signed anyone particularly great in the January window, Ainsley Maitland-Niles is a good footballer, but to expect him to keep West Brom in the Premier League is a hell of an ask. And it, it, it just struck me at the time as such a disastrous decision because if you compare them to Fulham, and you think about Fulham a few seasons ago when they came up um, and they sacked the manager and then went, you know, brought in Ranieri and then, you know, it was just a disastrous season. West Brom's decisions this season, you know, strike a similar chord. And then if you look at Fulham with Scott Parker bringing young players through even if they go down again they're still in a good place I think there's a lot about the Premier League these days with relegation where teams Norwich were like it last season you got the impression with their January spending you felt like they spent in January you know maybe these guys might keep us up but if then if they don't keep us up they'll be great in the championship next season and at West Brom it just looks so confused and you just get the sense it's hurtling towards this a horrible conclusion where, you know, Allardyce will jump ship a few games before it's confirmed so that he can keep his record of never, you know, always being the saviour. And then they'll be completely lost with a confused squad going into the championship. And I, I, I just feel really sorry for West Brom fans, not just because I've got a friend of mine who is a West Brom supporter, but... It, you would hope, you know, Fulham fans can take pride in their season, even if they go down. As Gregor said, I've watched them and I've enjoyed watching Fulham play. And there's always a, there's always, I've said this before, there's always a tactical idea from Scott Parker. There's always a bit of invention. There's a bit of a tweaking at half time if they're behind. It's so depressing watching West Brom at the moment. It's so, 
unimaginative. And I'm not saying this as a person, you know, anti-football to me can still be imaginative. I'm, you know, Big Sam can park the bus. It can still have, there can still be an idea. They're just, it just seems so confused and lost at the moment. Here's the, well, it, here's, here's the hope for, for um, West Brom fans. I'm just looking at Big Sam when he took over Crystal Palace, which was his last sort of great escape. And it didn't go well initially. He had a couple of months sort of from December into sort of start of February where um, it, it, he was still losing games that didn't look like he was making an impact. The signings um, at that point, you know, they weren't defensive signings. He signed Schlup, Van Arnholt, okay, fullback, um, Milahovic. Um, and it, it, it took him a while, but they stayed up because he, he, he got a run of, of, of five wins and six. I think four clean sheets once they got into spring um, by sort of drilling them on the training ground and, and getting to a point where they, he'd achieved some solidity. I agree with Tom that you don't see sign any signs of it, any signs whatsoever at the moment. But I think from the very start, West Brom have just been pinning their hopes on this guy's track record and history. And I think there's still a glimmer of hope because of that history that he has. This, we've seen this before from Sam where it suddenly clicks and he gets a run, uh, and that run can be enough. But to mention Gregor's point, this season maybe something more is needed because the teams ahead are, are so far ahead that that run, you know, five wins in six might not be enough at the moment. They, you know, they're going to need one of those teams above to, to go on a disastrous run as well. I do think from next week we're going to be in a new type of season once European football returns because for teams like West Brom, you will get all week on the training ground to prepare for your game at the weekend. And you might be playing a team that played on Thursday night in Lithuania or wherever you're allowed to fly to, to be frank at the moment. Um, and you might be able to steal a march on sides above you in the table. And maybe, you know, this is the point where West Brom can sort of galvanise their season and start putting in more solid performances. And you're right, Johnny, possibly turn a corner. But there is still a gap there, don't forget. You know, it's 11 points at this point in time. You know, it's a long, long way to go for West Brom. I actually think there have been some signs of improvement in terms of creativity and goals. And Daniel looked like he's he's kind of getting in the right areas anyway. He scored, I think he scored a goal that was offside against Spurs, didn't he, last weekend. Um, Snodgrass, I think, is a good signing. You know, as a kind of character and personality as well in the changing room. Um, and who knows, Maitland-Niles is shown real promise he could be a decent sign and he's got Gallagher along in that midfield he's someone who can get goals so I, th I actually think they probably just about have the, enough goals in the locker but defensively they're woeful and they're, you know I don't know how they didn't sign a, a centre half at least one I think Bartley Connor Townsend Connor Townsend I played with at Grimsby <laughs> Connor Townsend he's a good player but I'm not you know he's a good player but this is his first season. You know, he hardly played in the championship. Actually, he's not played much championship football, and he's now playing left back for West Brom in the Premier League. Bartley is a championship centre half, uh, penalty right back, or sometimes for long. He's a championship player. Uh, Ajayi is shown promise, but still, I, I, really, that's not a good enough back four for, for. Yeah, that's not that's not good enough really for the Premier League and so there's not much I'd really there's not much Sam Allardyce can do with that and I, it surprises me that that wasn't an area of the pitch they rectified as well but the, but the, the slightly mad thing about that is that Slavon Bilic's West Brom 
were quite good defensively. They came up from the championship basically on being incredibly solid and and winning games by one goal. That's that's what would concern me slightly is that you have someone like Allardyce coming in and building on some level of foundation that was there. It's like he's you know, Johnny, if you're saying that the run is gonna come, he must have the last, spent the last few games just unpicking everything that was there before. You know, taking taking a few batterings in order to piece it back together, and maybe maybe that'll be the case. But the, the, to come back to my other point, the other reason I feel sorry for West Brom fans is that bigger picture point about the club and the state of the club. You know, Gregor, you mentioned Conor Gallagher being a good player. You mentioned Ainsley Maitland Niles being a good player. They're not their players. They'll be gone back on back to their parent clubs at the end of the season. There's no real sense. I, d- I don't know what you would be excited about or hopeful for as a West Brom fan. And even if it does come off by some miracle, and I really do think it would be a miracle now, at the end of the season, what are you going to be left with? You're going to be left with a choice as to whether to give Sam another year and he goes down the route, the Allardyce route where you're signing up for another season of this or you, you, you change manager again and you have to start all over again. That, that's, that, to me, factors so much into the conversation about relegation these days. And, you know, and as I said, I think about Norwich last season. You think about Fulham this season. To me, that... Sheffield United too. Fan. And Sheffield United they're too. Now they, them, absolutely. They think that whatever happens, we've got... We're probably we're going to be in a better, better situation, a better state with him, and, uh, him at the helm to, to come back. Exactly. You know, they've bought... And we said at the start of the season, didn't we, that they changed... Not changed the style slightly, but they brought in different players that meant that they would take a bit of time to come through. And Jaden Bogle, people like that, are starting to perform. And even if they'd go down, you get the sense they will be a strong championship side again. I just think that has to be factored into our conversation about relegation. We can't just say, oh, well, Allardyce will get them to May and they'll be just about all right. Because it, f- football is so much bigger than that now. And that's 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 where I feel a little bit hopeless uh, discussing it from a West Brom point of view because I don't I don't see where even if he pulls off this run where are you as a West Brom fan in the summer whether you're up or down it's no, it, it, it's a club in a you know they don't know what's happening with the ownership there's no investment it is it is in one of those sort of drifting states I get that I was just going to say next Saturday week on Saturday you've got Fulham Sheffield United Burnley, West Brom. It's like a kind of D-Day for the the relegation teams. And I think if any if if, if any of them are going to survive, that 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 day is going to be you know a survival of the fittest. There's a chance, be a chance for Fulham or Sheffield United to beat each other, um, and a chance for West. If Burnley have to be sucked into it probably because I agree I don't think the other teams are going to go down. Maybe Wolves, but probably got enough points. So West Brom have got to go and win at Burnley, which will be. Not a very pretty game, I'd imagine, but <laughs> I can't wait. That is, that is, I was going to say. I hope that's on telly. Clock. That is a bit of me, that. Tom Clark Derby. It's got Saturday afternoon on BBC One written all over it. I think that's one that the uh, the major broadcasters might have allowed the, the, the little BBC <laughs> in this world to take. Funny you say that, Hugh. It's the only three o'clock kickoff on that Saturday. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, boom. <laughs> Listen, guys, before we go, there is something that I wanted to reflect on. Maybe goes back to our FA Cup theme a little bit. Alison Rudd's done a great interview in The Times this week with Daniel Amakachi, the former Everton and Nigeria striker, reflecting on the semi-final in the FA Cup of 1995 when Everton played Spurs. 
A great story. Amakachi with Paul Rideout injured on the pitch, went to the assistant manager back in the days where you had to fill out on a piece of paper what the substitutes were and said, Joe Raw, the gaffer, has, has said, I'm coming on for Rideout. The assistant has filled out a piece of paper, given it to the officials, and he's run onto the pitch. And at the same time, Joe, Joe Rawl sprinted off the bench asking what the hell's going on. Amakachi goes on, scores twice in a 4-1 win. Joe Rawl says, it's the best substitution I never made. So the rest, of course, is history with their win in 95 as well against United. Um, but just on that point, we wanted to talk about some of the, the best subs, the best impact subs um, that we can we can possibly remember. So, so Tom, I'll start it off with you. Best substitutes. I think because he gets such a bad rep at the moment, I'm going to nominate Gareth Bale in the Champions League final um, for Real Madrid. I don't think you can get much better than being disliked fairly publicly by your manager, Zinedine Zidane, being level against Liverpool, being Real Madrid, you know, need to win this trophy. This is, this is our everything. Being the guy who plays golf and only cares about Wales, trotting onto the pitch and three minutes later scoring an overhead kick from the edge of the box and just running. You know, that's that's about as good as it gets, isn't it, in terms of an impact substitution? It's the, it's the counter Amakachi. It's, it's got that added element of, I wish he'd just walked over to Zidane and just winked at him on the, on the, on the pitch because, you know, Zidane scored a great goal, a great volley in a Champions League final, but Bales was better. Um, so I'm going to nominate Gareth Bale. But there are lots of others. I had a few suggestions from uh, listeners. Vl- Vladimir Smitsa for Liverpool, also in a Champions League final. Uh, and I remember watching Borussia Dortmund against Juventus, also in a European Cup final, as it was called back then. And Lars Ricken coming on the pitch for Dortmund. And I was looking this up before, and he said that he was sat there on the bench and he noticed that the Juventus goalkeeper, I think it was Peruzzi, had been stood off his line most of the game. And I mean, whether this is true or not, it's it's hell of a confidence for a young player at the time. Came on the pitch and said, he's off his line, he's off his line. He got played clean through on goal and delivered the most gorgeous chip to make it 3-1. Um, and so there's lots of champions, big game mentions, but my uh, my winner is Gareth Bale to remember the good times whilst, whilst he's stuck on the bench for Jose. Gregor, what about you? Well, first of all, I'd say that uh, there's someone left to mind who... Uh was probably the closest I ever came to Amakachi. It was a guy called Danny Sonner, who I, I played with at Forest. He had like played for 14 clubs. I don't think he was ever at one for more than a couple of years. He's one of the funniest guys I ever met in football. But every single time he was on the bench, and I I was on the bench with him a couple of times here, <laughs> um, he, he was just, he nipped the manager's head for, from minute one to 90. He doing the old classic of stretching, you know, the calf stretch beside the beside the manager. He would start trying to talk to him and stuff about the game. He'd sometimes like if somebody was if some if, if he was looking to make a sub, he would take his jumper off. Like he was he was so bold about it all. He was he was and, and I think he got away with it because he was so funny. But he didn't ever go as far as uh, as writing his his own name down on the well, basically saying to the to the fourth official, "I'm coming on next." But he was hilarious on the on the sidelines. But for an impact, I think. With no, with no little bias, I'm, I'm going to have to go for Henrik Larsson in the Champions League final for Barcelona. That was an impact, if ever you've seen one. So um, Arsenal fans won't like me re- regaling that, but King Henrik. Um, I think that, you know, as a Celtic fan as well, growing up, when everyone always went on about how, because he was playing for Celtic, he wasn't good, you know, so what, he's playing for Celtic. And then he had the, that period at Barcelona and Manchester United and everyone went, 
Oh yeah, he's pretty good, isn't he, Old Henrik? So it, was, it was it was also weird the fact that he did it in international football so often. Exactly. And yet yeah. when, and when he played for Celtic, it was like, oh, it's only Scotland. Oh, he scored loads of goals at the Euros. Oh yeah, but he plays for Celtic, so he can't be that good. Well, it's pretty good players at the, the World Cup. No, no, no. He plays for Celtic, can't be that great. It was a very odd period um, for Henrik Larsson. I'm glad he proved everyone wrong in the end. Uh, Johnny, what about you? Who have you gone for? Well, the lads have made two great choices. I loved Henrik. I was at that final and, and, and that Bale one, I was, I was there as well. But I've got to mention Alex Ferguson and, and go back to 99, first of all. And, and I'm not, you know, we all know that Solskjaer and Sheringham scored the, the goals in the Champions League final. But this was part of a, this was not a fluke, this was part of a pattern. You know, United won the treble with Andy Cole coming on to score the winner against Tottenham to win the league. They won the FA Cup with Sheringham coming on to score uh, the first goal against Newcastle, which was an odd substitution because Roy Keane had gone off with an injury. And instead of putting on a midfielder, he put on a striker, which you know, after eight minutes, and it worked, he scored. And then, of course, you had Barcelona, you had Solskjaer scoring four coming off the bench against Forrest. Um, but I think, I think possibly Fergie's best substitution of all time was himself. It's a, it, it's, it's a story that goes back to 1977 with the St. Mirren tour to the Caribbean and South America. And I remember, I, I remember hearing about this incident and, and, and it was kind of, you only got kind of snippets of the story that had, had kind, kind of come out. And I kind of wrote about it and, and there was a story that went around that once upon a time, Fergie, when he was young manager at St. Mirren, had gone to the Caribbean he got really angry because the opposition were kicking his players and he'd sent himself on and he'd punched one of their players and got himself sent off. And, and that was the kind of story. And it took the players, it took, the, it took 36 years for the story to come out because those St. Mirren players were still so scared of Fergie. Frank McGarvey told the story <laughs> in his autobiography. And the, the actual story was Guyana were beating St. Mirren 1-0. McGarvey and a guy called Robert Torrance were playing up front couldn't score. Fergie was so angry with them at half time that he says, I'm going to show you how to score a goal. So he put himself on to show them how it would be strikers. Ended up arguing with the referee, he was an English referee, told the referee to F off and got sent off by, just got sent packing. And he, he then gave the players the hairdryer afterwards and he told them, if any word of this ever gets out, you're all dead. And for 36 <laughs> years, they kept the, they kept the secret. So there you go. And Fer, Fer, Fergie, I think, had eight red cards in his career, which was really difficult to achieve back in those days. And that was the last one of them as a player manager or as a manager that played one last time. Brilliant, brilliant story. Um, just because it's a European Championship year, I've just gone for two people who came off the bench to win it. There's probably more. But the last tournament, 2016, Ed Eyre of Portugal came on. He's an extra time sub, wins it, goes down in history. He's barely played for Portugal since, but he's got his moment. He'll probably have a statue somewhere in a museum. And David Trezeguet, Euro 2000 as well. You know, France, the golden goal um, final, which was, for me, the one of the worst things ever brought into football, um, but did provide us with, a, a, you know, a, a moment that will stand the test of time in football history, the, the walk-off goal in a major tournament final in Europe. So uh, I'll end on that and maybe there'll be a substitute who wins it, who knows, off the bench for England this summer. Right, Gregor? Right, Johnny? Happy with that, yeah. Greenish? 
<laughs> Lee Griffiths against too England. Early. We've done one. so well. Everyone's getting on, Hugh. Come on. Let's make this a happy episode. Yeah, I'm sure we'll uh, resurrect our conversation this summer as well. But thank you for listening to us. Uh, we'll be back with a game podcast on Monday. Remember, give us a five-star review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. And you can get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times as well. Right now, you'll get more of our great journalism. Sign up today. You'll get one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We will see you on Monday. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.